Hey, it's Ed, two brand new podcast supporters that I want to say thank you to, Corinne Elizabeth White and Clifford Rames. Thanks so much, Corinne and Clifford, for supporting the podcast. Anybody who's listening, if you want to learn more about those options, you can go to mountainandpray.com slash support to check it out. Thanks so much. Hey, this is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in land conservation or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, adventurers, pretty much anyone who's doing important work, has an interesting story, and loves the American West. This episode is a special recording from a Mountain and Prairie live podcast in Bozeman, Montana. On August 30th, more than 300 folks gathered at the historic Ellen Theater in downtown Bozeman to watch, listen, and participate in a wide-ranging conversation with four amazing women of the West. Hatmaker and farmer Kate Havstad, silversmith and all-around artist Jillian Lukuski, adventure photographer and writer Becca Skinner, and rancher and county commissioner Juanita Vero. We also held a raffle that benefited the Montana Land Reliance and the critical conservation work it's doing throughout the state of Montana. The show started out with a hilarious and high-energy welcome from the amazing Becca Frucht, who's one of the funniest and most unique human beings I've ever met. Then I spent about an hour and 15 minutes asking the women questions about their lives, their work, and their shared love of Western landscapes. After that, we had some excellent questions from the audience, followed by a few words from Jesse Weiss from the Montana Land Reliance. As you'll hear, a good bit of our conversation centered around the land, conservation, and agriculture, so it was very fitting that the Montana Land Reliance was such an important part of the evening. My only complaint about the event was that I wish it could have been much longer. As you'd expect, we only scratched the surface of all the fascinating topics we could have discussed. A heartfelt thank you to Kate, Jillian, Becca, and Juanita for being so open, thoughtful, and funny with all of their answers. The evening would not have been even a fraction of the success it was without their participation. Thanks to Becca Fruck for her amazing welcome and for figuring out a way to work Roadhouse into her opening remarks. Thanks to the Montana Land Reliance for all of their important work throughout the state and for being part of the evening. And a huge thanks to all of our sponsors, Chris Dombrowski Fly Fishing, Tom Morgan Rodsmiths, Onda Wellness, Modern Huntsman, Beargrass Riding Retreat, Heyday Bozeman, Head West Bozeman, and Big Agnes. And last but definitely not least, thanks to everyone who attended the event. I know we had people travel to Bozeman from many other states and even from Canada, so I can't thank you all enough for being such important members of this podcast community. It was truly a night to remember and I'm excited to do more live shows in 2020, so stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, enjoy this audio version of the Mountain and Prairie podcast live in Bozeman. All right. Wait, you know, y'all can get up, too. You can get up. It's Friday night. You got to shake it out. Shake it out. Shake it out. All right. Get limber. Loosen yourselves up. You're about to listen to some fierce, some fierce women. And, of course, the ultimate fanboy of the West, so I'm Becca Frucht. I'm formerly, thank you, formerly of Gallatin County, but now I'm a Park County princess. But I will always be, first and foremost, a Carolina girl. 
And that's really part of what brings me here tonight because you guys might know of a certain podcast host who is also a Southern gentleman. And, you know, we share this common bond because we are Southern by birth, but we are Western by choice. Yeah, you can clap for that. You can clap for that. You know, I, I want to get you guys a little bit looser. So, you know, can I get a hell yeah for the South? Can I get a hell yeah for the West? Can I get, can I get a mountain over here? Can I get a mountain? Oh, y'all, come on now. Let me get a mountain. Let me get a prairie. Let me get a mountain. Let me get a prairie. Okay, you guys are starting to loosen up. I can feel it. I can feel it. I told Ed, he was like, look, can you introduce me? And I was like, I'll be your hype woman. That's what I'm here to do. I'm here to hype you guys up. So, you know, Ed, part of why he asked me to introduce him is because he's a, he's a humble man. He really is. And not only does he diligently and like just lovingly produce this podcast, he's also the conservation director for the Palmer Land Trust. He has two, yes, cheers. Do it. Yeah. Palmer Land Trust, he has two crazy, wonderful little girls, an incredible wife that he has to keep up with. It's a lot of estrogen, and he's going to have a lot of estrogen here tonight. It's making it happen. He's a brave man. He's a brave man. Um, He reads voraciously, like out of control. I can't even believe how much he consumes. He does like mountain marathons. He meditates in the morning like in an ice bath. This is, he's got, he's got to practice, but he's really humble about it. And he's so humble that he didn't even make a poster for this event. So I decided to make one for him. I thought he needed like, so I don't, do you guys know about how he loves Roadhouse? Who listens to the podcast, right? Roadhouse, Patrick Swayze. So yes, this is Ed's face on Patrick Swayze's body. Yes, I thought he needed that, right? We all need a little bit of Swayze to get us ready for a live podcast. Um, and, you know, y'all might think, okay, like, Roadhouse, like, isn't that relevant. But, honestly, I think Ed really takes to heart, in particular, this scene from this cinematic masterpiece. Because it really is a truly bonkers action film that I, I think you should all consider taking some time to watch. But this scene that you're about to watch, this is also, like, Ed's rules of engagement for the podcast. And I think something we should take to heart tonight because, you know, I, I think there's some of y'all that could really listen to this. And it's... You know, it might get Western. It might get Western tonight. So let's, I'll let Swayze explain. All right. People who really want to have a good time won't come to a slaughterhouse. And we've got entirely too many troublemakers here. Y'all know who you are. Too many uh, 40-year-old adolescents, felons, Mm -hmm. power drinkers, and trustees of modern chemistry. I thought so. It's going to change. And that sure sounds good. But a lot of the guys who come in here, we can't handle one-on-one, even two-on-one. Don't worry about it. All you have to do is follow three simple rules. One, never underestimate your opponent. Expect the unexpected. Two, take it outside. Never start anything inside the bar unless it's absolutely necessary. Take it to Main Street, y'all. Three, be nice. Okay. All right. All you power podcast listeners, I want to welcome to the stage the nicest man I know, Ed Robertson. 
when I uh, asked Becca to do that, I said, all right, Becca, I'm just, I just want you to introduce me. I don't want to know anything about what you're going to do. I, have no, I don't want to have any idea. And that's what you get. So I was, I was nervous enough about going after Becca and then going after Becca plus Swayze. Uh, that's like my worst nightmare. But, um, but anyway, thank you all so, so, so much for being here. I mean, this is it's the craziest thing. Um, and I can't, you know, when I walked into Best Buy three or four years ago and said, give me your cheapest microphone that I can hook up to my laptop and started doing this podcast, I just, I, I honestly thought if my mom listened, that'd be great. And now, you know, we got all these people that listen and then all these people that come to events like this. And so I, I really can't thank you enough. And it's really built up this really cool community around the podcast. And so it's beyond all my expectations. So thank you so much for that. Um, second group I want to thank, of course, is the women that are going to be out here in just a minute. They're amazing women. They've all been on the podcast. We've talked for an hour and a half each, and we barely scratched the surface, so I'm excited to get them out here. Um, the, you know, I've kind of joked around on social media saying it's the badass women of the West, but I, uh, I really agree with that. I mean, these women are, are very, very impressive. And the last person I want to thank, and the most important person, is a true badass woman, and that is my wife, Kim. And uh, she... First of all, she puts up with my nonsense, which is just unbelievable. But she's the encouragement behind all this. And she gets, you know, she is, when I go up and down and think, oh, I don't want to do that podcast anymore. She's like, you know, keep doing it, keep doing it. And she works full time. We've got two young daughters. She, you know, fully uh, gets all credit for their success. And uh, she's right there. Kim. Um, so as far as the timing, uh, whenever I go sit down and listen to my talk, I want to know how it's going to go. So I think what we're going to do, about an hour, hour 15 of us talking, me asking questions, then up to about 30 minutes of Q&A from y'all. And then we got people from Montana Land Reliance who are going to talk about the important work they're doing. And then we got, we got like 1500 bucks worth of gear uh, to give out in the raffle. And we'll crank through that quick. So I would say uh, by 9 o'clock, we'll be out doing the next chapter of the evening. So... Again, thank you so, so much for being here. Um, I, it, I can't tell you how much it means to me. Um, so enough of my nonsense talking. Let's bring out the ladies. Come on out, ladies. It's the, the reality. Um, I think everybody here knows exactly who y'all are. And they're not sure as hell not here to see me. But um, maybe let's just run through real quick, give a quick intro, your name, where you live, what you do. And that's with the caveat, knowing we can talk about this for an hour and a half and you still don't even scratch the surface of what these women are doing. But just real quick, go through. Kate, you go first. Yeah, my name is Kate Havstad. Um, I live in Madras, Oregon. And um, I'm both a hat maker and a farmer. Good job, Kate. Thanks. <laughs> I'm Jillian Lakuski. I live in Idaho. I'm a silversmith, a writer, a photographer, and I run a little hay farm, too, in the summer months. Cool. Becca? My name is Becca Skinner. I live here, and I manage a small permaculture farm at our house, and I'm a photographer and writer. Uh, my name's Juanita Vero, and I have a dude ranch, and I'm a minty fresh county commissioner. Yeah! Yes. 
<laughs> so I was trying to think of how we start the conversation because you could go so many different ways. And um, I was thinking maybe we just kind of pick up where we left off. And Kate, you and I talked probably a year and a half, two years ago now. And when we spoke, you were fully focused on hat making with kind of one foot in the farming world. And I was telling you before we started that uh, about 10 minutes left in the podcast, I asked her something about farming and she got so hyped up and energetic and emotional about it. And I was like, man, we need to talk more about that. So here we are. So could you just talk a little bit about kind of where your career has evolved since we hung up the Skype call a year and a half ago? Yeah. Um, so in the last couple years, <clears throat> my partner Chris and I have expanded our farming operation uh, we used to be uh, a very diversified uh, small farm serving like a CSA of about 120 people in doing farmers markets. And uh, we've sort of changed our model and we've scaled up. Uh, we were managing about 10 acres before and now we're managing about 150. And, uh, and hat, hat career-wise, um, I made the decision to try and compartmentalize my hat business and then the farming so that I can be fully present in hat making for about six months out of the year, and then fully present for our farm for about six months out of the year. And um, so that's what I'm doing. We're in the thick of farming season right now, and harvest is around the corner. So and, what's yeah. it been like, because we, we've had some conversations offline about your, yeah. your delving into farming. I mean, you're, you're in because you owe money now. I mean, you're, totally. you're, you're an owner, and you know, you're, yeah. you're like every farmer I know, yeah. you know, there's a bank involved. And so how has that been? Yeah, um, I mean, it was also intimidating at first. We, we went in on the acquisition of this property with my partner's parents, and that felt uh, safe and supported, and they did about a year of farming and decided, oh, yeah. <laughs> 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 Typical parents. Yeah. <laughs> and neither Chris nor I come from farming families. I think that's important because acquisition of land is extremely difficult. Um, just having the time and the space to learn the skills it takes to farm takes a long time, <clears throat> long time. And um, so, yeah, in the last year, we've taken over the mortgage, we've taken over management of this whole property. And um, while it was really intimidating at first, um, it all makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And if there's two people who are going to do it, I feel like uh, we can. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That's awesome. And so I'll, I want to talk to Juanita about what she's been up to because going into, I've forgotten this, but we were talking before and I asked her during our podcast, so when are you running for office? She said, never. And now she's a politician. <laughs> so so talk, first of all, tell me what a county commissioner is. It's whatever you want it to be. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, 15 years ago, I, I didn't know what a county commissioner was until... Um, there was an egregious subdivision proposal uh, next door to me, and um, I had kind of lived in this utopian Blackfoot Valley, you may know it, and I, I couldn't believe that this uh, 119 lots were going to be put on 200 acres out in the middle of nowhere, and, and it just didn't make sense, and I, was, I didn't understand um, what needed to happen, and then ultimately it was a county commissioner's decision to approve or not approve the subdivision, there's a whole process involved. And so it was important to me to learn who my county commissioners was were, and um, that kind of started my education. Um, and I've been involved with a lot of nonprofits, conservation 
community organizations, and it's just kind of grown from there. So what a county commissioner does, man, it's, I mean, I could get a concussion sitting in the meetings that we have go to. I mean, it's like <laughs> 8 o'clock in the morning, we're talking about pavement recipes, like pavement recipes. I, I didn't know that was a thing. It's a thing. Yeah. The recipes for pavement, and then they change, and they get better. And then you go from that meeting to understanding that in Missoula County, we are able to provide uh, early detection of uh, autism for ages four and under. And nowhere else in the region can do that except for a few folks that we have available to the, to the public um, in Missoula County. And so that, it's just super intense. Or then we have 30 people who uh, um, don't have homes and they are camping on county land close to town because they can't go anywhere else. And what are we going to do with them? And then you have a community that's an hour and a half from the city that needs a new sewer. And how are they going to pay for it? How do we make it fair? Um, does that community want to grow? Yes. Some people say no. And, and, and how do you pay for a sewer? Um, so, so a county commissioner, I never wanted to do it what I was telling Ed, yeah, yeah. because you kind of get shat on coming and going. Um, you're never going to provide what people want. I mean, you, you, you have the responsibilities are mandated from the state, and then you have the, the and, and you don't have any money to, to uh, do that work that is necessary and required. And so, so it's, here's it's a hard my job. question. Everybody complains about their local government or the government in general. So where did it, where did it get in your head that, like, where do you credit, uh, or who do you credit for giving you the, the energy to be like, all right, I'm going to take charge of this. I'm not going to sit around and complain all day about this division coming in. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take charge. Where does that come from? I mean, I think, I think we probably all have this in common, but it's, um, I mean, you, you live in a place long enough and you get to a certain age, yep. and then you realize that you have the capacity to serve and to organize and to do something, and you have something to offer, and and then you you start that journey. So um, you get me. bored with developing yourself, so you want to develop something <laughs> bigger. Yeah. <laughs> but it's 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 networking and, and helping um, people under or having folks help you understand how to navigate that process. Yeah. And so help me with your question again. So I mean, I'm just saying, where did that inner strength or the inner courage to be like, all right, I'm going to take charge. I'm going to be a leader here. I'm not going to... Oh, I, I live in a really rural you area. Have, so there's not, have a, to do it. not a lot of people. <laughs> well, I, I really... And, I, and I'm genuinely curious. And, yeah. And, um, and tough. you got to be tough. And, your baseline and you of what never, tough is. You don't is not ever want to tell people you're tough because then you're not. Then, then you're not. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, that's why I said like Navy SEALs don't totally. go into bars telling everybody how tough they are. Right? Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think some of them do. So, so <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Jillian, uh, Juanita mentioned something that I wanted to ask you about the this connection to place because I feel since we spoke. I think you've been through almost two full summer seasons on your property. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I admire watching you on, on social media and just reading your writing is this connection to place that you have. And so I was wondering, you know, what, is, what have you learned in these two seasons of being on your land, deeply immersed like you are? What's different this summer than it was when we spoke almost a year and a half ago? Well, I've learned my limitations. Really? Like <laughs> oh, what? Yes. Give me an example. It's been humbling. Um, I just realized that there's 
something that I place huge value on is my food and yep. being a part of growing it and hunting it and raising it myself. Yep. And I can't do that full throttle and do everything else I do full throttle. I have to like take some irons out of the fire in the summertime mm-hmm. and it's okay. Yeah. How did you come to that? I mean, I, it was going to happen one, one way or the other, but were there any... Was there Mental a breakdowns. I mean, <laughs> no breakdowns. Is that what you're Just looking for? Yeah, that, that, that works. I That's how it works for me. I was in a straight jacket for a few hours. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I just, it, you know, you get overwhelmed and um, you get to a point where you're getting nothing done because yeah. there's like too much, like too many objects up sure. in the air that you're juggling. So you just have to like figure out which things don't fit in the puzzle, yeah. pull them out, and then keep juggling everything. And if it works, it works. And if it doesn't, you pull a couple more things out. I mean, it's kind of trial and error. Sure. I don't have like a... No Tim Ferriss system in place? Negative. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, no, I just had to learn what I could fit in without like completely depriving myself of quality of life, basically. And I think I've, if people listen to the podcast, they've heard, I, I just do these interviews because I'm trying to help myself and I'm trying to get good information <laughs> that I can use. And so... Whenever Kim leaves town and I've got, I can do whatever I want and I can, I, I, the girls are gone, I can have these productive streets, I just turn into a complete slob and I don't do anything. I don't do anything. And so I'm wondering, it's probably just this, this is how you are and you're just a lot tougher than me. But when Rob is gone off jumping out of airplanes yeah. and you're there, how do you, where, how do you get this inner strength to work as damn hard as you do, both on the farm and with your jewelry making? Like, a lot of it is that I don't want to disappoint him. Really? Yeah. A He's lot a good of it dude. I, I interviewed him on the podcast. If y'all haven't heard that, he's a very, very interesting guy. He's a great guy. Yeah. But I, you know, I, we both love our farm. Uh-huh. So that's, you know, really, I just have to keep everything fed and alive. And yep. I know I won't disappoint him. Yeah. And then anything, you know, anything I get done in the photography department or writing department or, jewel, or in my jewelry studio is kind of the cherry on top at the end of the day. That's yeah. how I have to treat the summer. And then, you know, once he's back on October 1st and he's home for six months, I can really work at full strength again. Got so it. I just kind of just accept that I can't quite do as much as... Yeah. As I want to. Well, I want to talk more about the partnerships y'all have with, with husbands and partners. Um, but, Becca, I, I want to talk about your evolution because when we spoke um, a while back, we, I feel like we, we spent a lot of time talking about public land. Mm-hmm. And then a few months later, we were emailing. We had a great conversation talking, talking about private land conservation. Right. And you kind of discovered that. And even though you're so deeply immersed in conservation, all these different issues, it was a real big learning opportunity for you. And you've since written some really, really great articles in Modern Huntsman, which is a sponsor of this event, um, and done a lot of stories. And it seems like just an email and that a lot of your work is now around understanding and communicating private land mm-hmm. conservation. And I think everybody here is probably a huge public lands advocate, but can you talk a little bit about that kind of discovery you made, I guess? Sure. Um, uh a wonderful friend named Laura Nelson heard the podcast mm-hmm. that I did with you. And I think when you and I spoke, I had just started to get interested in private land. And I live right behind a large chunk of private land. And so I was interested to see what they were doing for conservation. And um, when she heard the podcast episode, she invited me to an environmental stewardship tour. And they were honoring a ranch who was doing a lot of stewardship, giving back to the land, doing a lot of um, crop rotation and predator cattle um, mitigation. And going to that tour, 
I felt like someone pulled the veils across in front of my eyes and yeah. it was like there's there's so much being done about public land which I think is a great issue to be arguing for and there's so much large there's large chunks of private land especially in Montana um, and there's a lot that private land owners can be doing for conservation so I've kind of taken a deep dive into that and it's been really fun and a huge learning experience for me too Um, and a lot of that is just listening to people but that's definitely the direction that my work has headed into and I'm really happy about it. So I guess what when you were discovering this the, the private land issue what was the biggest surprise about it? I mean, was there one thing that stuck out and you're like, man, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't realize that was so important? Or, is, or were there any kind of aha moments uh, when, you, when you are crafting these stories and just kind of these, these lessons you've learned that were, you were kind of blind to before? Sure. I think that for the majority of my life, I've seen private land as red tape. Yeah. And been a little bit upset that like I want to fish that fishing hole or I want to walk across there and look for sheds and um, I think for me learning that not that there are a lot of private land owners doing really great things for their soil for their for the environment for biodiversity was I it's just not anything that I had thought about before yeah and so I think the largest shift now is that when I'm driving down a small highway in Montana, I'm looking at the rangeland. I'm wondering if they're doing cattle rotation. I'm wondering if they're rotating. On the drive-in, Jillian and I were talking about, I wonder what that farmer is doing to rotate their wheat to or alfalfa. And it's totally shifted the way when driving through this state that I look at land, which yeah. has been really fun. It is fun. I- Jim Howell, who I've had on the podcast twice, and I think he might be here tonight, but he, uh, he wrote a book called For the Love of Land, and it's all about how grazing, cow- grazing cows can um, be highly, highly, highly beneficial to these uh, large-scale grasslands. And if for anybody who wants to dig into that, I highly recommend that. And Jim, if you're out there, you, you owe me a commission on these, all these books I'm having to say. <laughs> Um, Juanita, so you've been deeply immersed in private land your whole life, and we touched on this a little bit um, on the podcast, but can you just talk a little bit about what your family has done? On I, I got an argument, well, not an argument, with my five, eight-year-old nephew uh, earlier today. Um, and uh, and because I, 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 private land, man, um, and I get pissed off about, uh, you know, the public not respecting private land and uh, like toilet paper blooms every time, Why? like when hunting season starts, Ugh. and Why? we're in block management, and I'm proud of that. But come on, pick up your toilet paper. <laughs> um, and then it, uh, eh, uh, um, and then I, and then, I, and then I just love what you said, uh, Becca, about folks understanding like how important private land is uh, ecologically. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> Because it's it's habitat for a host of species, and um, sometimes I feel that that's forgotten, mm-hmm. um, or maybe not fully recognized the the, the habitat that's available um, on private land. And so, 
Um, and then I'm thinking about how block management got started. Uh, man, my, my explain. Will you explain what block management? Yeah. Is? So block. What, what we have on our our ranch, um, it's, it's public access walk-in hunting. Um, it, it's you don't have to sign anything. You can just come on and hunt the general public. Um, and this started in the early 70s um, because my, my grandfather would, would, was so angry about people hunting on the property and cutting fences or leaving gates open or driving around on roads. Um, and uh, it was a tough management issue. And so he ended up having uh, his mother's purse gun in his glove and he'd wander around and shoot at people um, <laughs> who were not respecting fences and property. And, and you can't do that. that just, you, you just can't do that. <laughs> and he wasn't shooting at them. He was shooting over them or towards them to scare them away. And so uh, fortunately, he had a much more uh, level-headed neighbor who decided that, hey, we can, we can do something about this. We're going to work with Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, and, and we're going to work on a, a block management program where Fish, Wildlife, and Parks will manage the public, you, private landowner, allow the public to be on your land, and, um, and then the, the private landowner gets a little bit of money. Not, nothing, I mean, it's, it's not a, a huge amount, but it's just, uh, and to uh, allow that um, kind of collaborative relationship to evolve, and then the public, and I think there's something with walk-in hunting too, uh, that hunter is a little more invested they're not driving around. Like, you have to be committed to, like, yeah. walk in and hunt this piece of property yeah. or bike in or ride your horse in. Um, so you're a little more invested in the experience, perhaps, and mm -hmm. so, uh, and vigilant um, and, and watching out and self-policing. And so that's been something that we found is really positive, is uh, the, the self-policing that happens, and then um, people are a little more invested in the experience and then invested in the land. And, and it just makes me really excited to, during hunting season, be out riding, and I'll run into people who've been hunting my family's property, but, but hunting that property for, for generations, and, and um, yeah, it's pretty cool that, that they cool. care so much about it, and I mean, it gets a little, um, what's his name, Michael... Pile the extinction of experience. Is that who wrote that? You've managed to build like passive yeah. relationships with people, and basically. it's just you want people to be involved. And so, if the public gives a shit, then yeah. then they will help take care of it. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. uh, my grandfather was not a warm fuzzy sort of dude, but yeah. uh, ultimately, he that, that that's the goal he wanted was to people yeah. for for folks to to care about the property and and yeah, the habitat. And so, kind of back to the public, we just go back and forth. Um, public land, Jillian, we, we talked about this a bit on our podcast, and your uh, essay that you wrote, Why I Hunt, um, I believe that's what it's called, about the importance of going out there and suffering in the, in, <laughs> on these, and most of that is on public lands, and just this need, uh, kind of this primal need we have for adventure and to really kind of bust our ass out in the wilderness. Can you just, can you kind of recap... Um, what you, you know, what you get out of these hardcore hunting trips that you do and then what you and Rob do and kind of how that feeds your kind of the, I guess your soul, that sounds kind of soft, but, but how, does, how does that hunting? Not her soul. soul. My soul is black. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Don't worry about that. Um, I wish you would have 
I would have reread what I wrote. No, that was sorry. quite a long time ago. Um, and not every time you go hunting is it like a big sucker sure. fest, but sometimes, you know, it can be a little uncomfortable. Yeah. Or dreadfully <laughs> uncomfortable. But I think it's, you know, we've lived, we live in a time of ultra convenience in our society. And in a, for a lot of people, a major separation from life and death cycles. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, going out to get your own food and have to work hard for it and to have to bleed a little for it and sweat a little for it is really healthy. Sure. Um, and it takes you back to kind of like the root of your humanity in a lot of ways. For me, it does anyway. I'm this is why myself. you need to read Wendell Berry because you know. guys will like connect on the like doing shit the hard oh. way. Me and Wendell. I <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I mean, that's the gist of that, of what I wrote. I yeah. Think. And so where did... I think a lot of people kind of understand that. I understand that at a large scale, like it's, it's good to go out and push yourself. But again, a lot of people don't do it. And I mean, you've had a, ever since you were a kid growing up because of your father's job and you've, you've been out in these wild places. And I mean, have you, have you always enjoyed that or has it been, has it been a chore kind of like, I know I need to do this, but I'm going to do it. Or is it, are you able to just kind of go out there and do it, you do it and it's no, no big deal. I think that's the difference between like going out with a purpose and uh-huh. just recreating. Sure. I think there's a really big difference between those two things. And it's I'm and I don't want to like I really enjoy hunting. I like going out and being behind my bird dogs. I like being with my husband. It gives me a really strong sense of family when yeah. we're out there together. And and that's really important to me, but there's there are times when it feels like a chore. Like at the end of a long work day, our dogs are kind of neurotic and we decide to load them in the truck and take them out for a hunt more for them than for us. You know, Uh there are aspects of it sometimes that are, that can feel chore like, like it's a duty to get done for the day so you can go to bed and feel like you got everything checked off the list kind of. Yep. So, I mean, there's aspects of duty to it Uh and there's, and it's also like a great pleasure at times. I really love going out and getting our food. Yeah, that makes sense. And so Kate, again, back to the private land and you're farming, um, in my work at Palmer Land Trust, most of what I do is working with farmers. And before that, I was selling ranches, and so it was pretty much all dealing with ranchers. And the farming world has been so so eye-opening to me on so many levels, everything from their, similar to ranchers, but their devotion to this piece of land that they are connected to and their family's been connected to. And then just what a damn hard business it is. I mean, I don't think you could pick a harder business just to do, and then you throw in how, you know, it's hard financially, like business model, do- dollars and cents, but then it's physically hard. Yeah. So, um, what, I guess the, the first question there would be, what, is the, what are some of the biggest challenges that you face on a daily basis trying to make this business you have profitable? I mean, is it, is it like macroeconomic trends, these, you know, just the way the system's set up, or is it being having the stamina to, to bust your ass for 16 hours a day. Yeah. Um, yeah. Big question. I think you could write a book about that. Yeah. Know, <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. I want to quote Wendell Berry, and he mm-hmm. says, uh, "You know, we never win, we never lose, but we just keep on keeping on." Yeah. And um, and then when I asked Chris, like, why, why do we do this? <laughs> Or like, what would be your answer? He said, I love working too hard and getting paid too little. <laughs> and like, I mean, it's a, it's a joke, but you're certainly not in farming for money. Yeah. Um, not in our form of farming, for sure. 
Um, the biggest challenge, I think, um, okay, I'll just talk about Central Oregon. Uh, it's distribution systems. Um, when farms started to really industrialize, um, really only the fittest survived. And the fittest meant people who adopted certain technologies, um, certain models of farming that maximized uh, input, output, profit models. Yeah. And our current system of industrial farming was born. And it's all about yield and quantity and everything just grew to these gigantic proportions. So as a farmer right now, um, you can be really micro, a small farm doing direct-to-consumer, and there you have avenues of sales. You can be huge. You can be a ginormous industrial farm, and you have avenues of sales. It's what has been lost has been this sort of like agriculture of the middle systems. And it doesn't matter all your regenerative farming practices and your dedication to the land if you don't have the distributions to get your food to the people. So... Systems, distribution systems has been our biggest um, challenge. And we have a group of people in Central Oregon working really hard to rebuild that ag of the middle. Mm -hmm. And that's what I feel super passionate about is reclaiming this um, way to manage land and to rebuild those systems because um, it's a form of farming that is the most affectionate and the most caretaking and um, I feel like the most regenerative in the long term. It's the, it's the original farm, really. Yeah. That's what yeah. farms were always intended to be before yeah. they went mega. Yeah, we're like a family, or like a family plus some helpers yeah. mm -hmm. could manage it. But, you know, like, for example, okay, when we moved on to our farm, we moved on to the property with my in-laws, and we were living in a shack, like just straight up a shack with no bathroom. And I was That's like, hardcore. great, I can't do this for that long, yeah. Chris. Like, let's get a house. <laughs> and so we started looking into the process of getting a permit to put a house. And there were so many red tapes and You need better blocks. county commissioners, right? Yeah. <laughs> Juanita hey, is inspiring, yeah. For sure. Um, also, our areas where the whole like Rajneesh thing yeah. happened, so they're very careful oh. Oh, about wow. like commune-looking situations. Oh, yeah. We kind of look like hippies. <laughs> Um, now you got in that very, giant... very nice hat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they think we got money, and I'm like, no, I just make hats. Um, uh, but so, uh, so for example, in our area, um, you know, you have to gross a certain amount of income for them to justify you getting to put a second house on your property. Uh. And it makes it very, so it's like, okay, so in theory, you're expecting one family to manage 160 acres. That's a certain kind of farming. Yeah. And that is a reflection of where our society is at and how we expect farms to be managed, which is not how we sure. do things. You need multiple families to manage land responsibly that way. Um, so that's just one little micro way to see, you know. Yeah. yeah. That's great. And I think everybody here could, could answer this question, but if you had to name one thing that people in the audience or just we as consumers could do to chip into the food, the, the local food movement or more responsible agriculture, more responsible food production, what would it be? I mean, I know there's like the buy local thing, but I mean, yeah. is there anything, is there, and that, there's probably a lot of truth to that, but what, what would you recommend? Like, what could we do to help you and people like you? Um, 
gosh. I mean, it really is just like supporting local agriculture, and that doesn't mean just going to farmer's market every once in a while. Yeah. And that's a frustration of ours. Like, when we are still going to farmer's market, you know, it's the fair weather buyer. It's like, if it's too hot, they don't come. If it's raining, they don't come. And it's like, well, shit, we're out there harvesting every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Come. So <laughs> it's... it's <laughs> It's like, don't just do it on convenience. Do it because all of our livelihoods and all of our futures depend on it. And, um, and, and live it. And here's another example, just because people love statistics. And this is a reflection of our current uh, uh, system of agriculture. So in Oregon, because that's where I'm from and I understand this system the best, um, 80% of our agricultural products are exported, mm-hmm. um, primarily internationally, some in the, in the nation, um, and 90% of our agricultural products that we consume are imported. Wow. And when I think about that, that to me seems like a broken system that doesn't really make sense. Yep. And I, in the last few years, like the world can feel so overwhelming as far as how do we tackle these big issues and these big problems. And my only answer is to like look at your community. You start in your neighborhood. You got to start here. And it literally starts with our neighbors. Mm -hmm. And that's such a cliche. But before moving to Madras, which is a pretty small little agricultural area, we didn't really know our neighbors in Bend. There was still this sort of like, hmm. And, but in Madras and at these agricultural communities, you need each other. And um, so that would be my thing, is it's like really sink in and, like, and change your current local food system, whether it's in Charlotte or Austin or wherever. Like there are farmers trying to do the thing, and they need the people who are really going to do the thing with them. Good job. And, oh, one more thing. Yeah. Because... Um, Access to land, so difficult for young people. Um, if you own land, you should find a way to let some young, idealistic people farm it. Yeah. I agree for with that. For free. For free. Pay them. Pay them. Pay them in veggies. Yeah, yeah. That's No, I, I see that all the time. Thing. You know, in my work, um, especially front range of Colorado, the land's just too expensive. And mm-hmm. whether you're ranching or farming, water adds a whole different component of expense. Mm-hmm. And it's trying to figure out the next generation of farmers and ranchers. I mean, if anybody can crack that code, uh, you got a big future ahead of you because it's, it's challenging. Um, yeah. So transitioning from land talk to creativity talk, um, and you know, all, all of y'all are extremely creative, and you're all willing to put yourself out there in one way or another. Juanita, you from... I'm not creative compared no, to these three women. No, 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 you are. <laughs> creative, well, you know about uh, mixtures of, of asphalt. That's, that's very... Yeah. Uh, you know now, how to keep people alive on your ranch. Yeah. But, that's creative. You, know, you, you, all, you all put yourself out there in a way that a lot of people were not willing to do. And Jillian, you know, you, you live this authentic life, and it's so unique, but you're, you're also sharing it with the world. And so how do, you, how do you balance that, or how do you overcome any maybe self-confidence that comes along with that? Because I know, like, if I'm getting ready to put a post on social media before, oh, man, before I put out a podcast, I'm like, oh, God, people are going to think I'm so stupid when I put this. In. It's just this endless, like, self-flagellation. You know, so how, 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 did, how can I be more like y'all? How, how can I be so confident? I don't <laughs> know if I'm the right person to answer. Yes, you are. <laughs> Tell me, how do you do it? Uh, I don't know. Sometimes I get nervous about that. I wonder what kind of feedback I'm going to get. It tends to be one extreme direction or the other usually. Um, But then I also kind of try to not care. Yeah. I mean, 
the Instagram isn't my master. Sure. I run my space. I shut my phone off if I want to. Yep. I try to share stuff that's true and honest. I try not to feed anybody's BS. I don't care if my following number comes up or down. I just, if people don't relate, they don't relate. They can move on to someone else. So I just, I just try my very hardest to be honest. And if people can't handle it, it's not really my problem. No, that's a great, I think that's a great philosophy of life. Um, and so same with, with you, Becca, similar question. You know, when you're talking about public lands or private lands, anything with land in the West, it can get people kind of pissed off. And so um, I guess everything does these days, but it's, in this little world we're in, that land can really get people mad. So how do you overcome that initial kind of nervousness, all right, before I publish this or before I send it to Modern Huntsman to have them publish? I mean, what, what goes through your head that allows you to get over any fear you have? Or maybe you don't have fear. I don't know. Definitely have fear. <laughs> um, I think sending it to people, how many times have I sent you a piece yeah. of writing and said, hey, can you look this over? <laughs> um, and so I think utilizing my community and having people take a look at what I'm writing or it, if I feel like it's sensitive, I'll send it, I'll show it to my husband or, um, or a friend and just have a second or a third set of eyes on it if yep. it feels especially nerve-wracking. Um, but... If it's something I want to be talking about, like Jillian said, it's my space and I get to control what's in my space. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's always the fear of people being of negative reaction. Negative. I do yeah. want to add one more thing, though. Yeah. And that is that I think any negative reaction you receive is, a, is an opportunity for personal reflection. Like people send in the words and uh -huh. it's, you get a chance to turn it over in your hands and see if, it's act, if there's any truth to it or not. And sure. if there is truth, what do you need to fix about yourself? So yeah. I actually try not to just like shut. But how do you balance that with, I, th I definitely agree that there's value in doing that, but there are a lot of people who I don't care what they think. And so how do you, know, how do you balance in your head between, all right, this person, they're just not this is not for them. Like, what I'm doing is not for them. Thank you very much. Oh, See you I think later. you can kind of measure if something, measure if something has an ounce of, like, constructive nature to it or not. Then you can kind of roll it over in your hands a little bit before you chuck it over your shoulder. <laughs> yeah. No, that, that makes sense. I mean, some stuff is just junk. You can yeah. just let it slide on through. Um, here's a question, since we're talking about social media. Um, how do y'all, and anybody can answer this, how do you manage your social media? Because I feel like... Social media is what brought all of us together. You know, I mean, that's the whole reason, and that's the reason y'all are here, and it, I mean, it's the craziest thing, because I'm constantly trashing it, and I need to stop, because it has led to this. I mean, this is all thanks to Mr. Mr. Zuckerberg. He facilitated this, but um, I mean, but, you know, it allows you to connect with all these interesting people, um, but at the same time, there's this dark side of losing productivity, and so how do y'all... You've all got social media followings, people, you know, you're active on social media. How do you use it as a great tool for sharing everything you're doing, which is so cool, without letting it take all the hours out of your day? I have a pretty limited social media following, so it's not a huge... Yeah. Juanita, I like everything you post. <laughs> Everything. I, I, I keep to social media like later in life, so I and, and my job doesn't depend on it in my career. So I don't, you know, um, I guess what I'm trying to say, my social media space 
uh, gives me joy. And, uh -huh. and, and the folks that I follow or the people I interact with, it's a joyful, positive experience. I don't spend a lot of time on YouTube. I don't read comments. I don't hang out with negative shit. And yeah. so I'm in my own like happy silo, whatever. So, um, mm -hmm. But uh, so that's how I manage it. But then... Like how do you, when you're at work and you look at it, how do you keep it from going down that rabbit hole and, and uh, being distracted? Because the way I think about it is Zuckerberg and his guys have these teams of... Minions. Of, yeah, yeah, minions, and they're highly paid psychologists to make that stuff as addictive as possible. And I don't have an addictive personality, but I find myself addicted to It's a beautiful to a form of communication. I mean, yeah. it's a wonderful way to reach people. Like, we're all here because of that. Yeah. And, and, I mean, I think you manage it the way you manage the people in your life. Like, if you're, I mean, I would like to think that we don't keep toxic people in our lives. Sure. And so. I think it's a really rare human yeah. who isn't addicted to something. I mean, everyone's yeah. kind of got their thing. Sure. I guess social media is pretty benign. Better than, better than death. It's easier on your liver than yeah. many things. <laughs> um, so what, what do you, do you guys still delete do? it off yeah. your phone? Is that how you usually manage it? When I'm doing well, like when I'm in a good, good productive streak, um, I have it off my phone. And then Kim, of course, can tell when it's back on the phone and I'm playing with it. And she's like, hey, why don't you delete that off your phone? And then everything just takes off again. I, I don't know what I did without her. <laughs> it was a damn mess. Um, so, so back to this is kind of kind of a random question, but I'm interested to, to hear it. You're all so closely connected to where you live, and it's such a big part of your life. If you had to move somewhere else, because I bet most of you would say, "I don't want to move anywhere." But if somebody said in the west, you had to move somewhere else in the west, where would it? Where would you move, and why? Oh, I like this question. You do. Like oh, this you question. didn't say it had to be in the west. Oh no, well, it can be in anywhere. the west. Anywhere. Okay. Okay, I'll go. Go. <laughs> well, I really love Idaho, but if I had to move, I really, really, really love South Dakota. Do you really? Deeply. Talk to me about South Dakota, because I don't understand It's so beautiful. I mean, I shouldn't say too much, because yeah. people will get mad yeah. about it. Yeah. But I just, there's just a feel to that state. I mean, I'm from the great northern plains. Yep. I'm from Saskatchewan. That's my home country. Uh -huh. and, I, and I just, I like a big, wide open horizon line. I like to see the sunset coming. All you wouldn't miss the long. mountains. I like to see the storms coming in for hours. I love that. The mountains block everything out. I like to be <laughs> in them. I like to be on top of them with a view. But like when you're in them, I just feel like I'm losing my like my sun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I drive through canyons that are beautiful, and I'm like, ooh, nice canyon, but way too little like daylight hours in here. You just can see it like cut off. I don't like that. I like to grow tomatoes. Yep. I like to like <laughs> <laughs> very like have some. Life, some life stipulations when it comes awesome. to this stuff. I also love New Mexico. It's very high there, not as good a growing season, I think. Sure, sure. But those were, my main thing is, Becca and I talked about this earlier, I'm not so concerned about moving to a place with like-minded people, because I can kind of get along with most people, uh -huh. and I make my community wherever I go, yeah. and I can find something beautiful about no matter where I live, but it's become increasingly important to me that no matter where I live, I have immediate access from the front door to public land. Mm. Everywhere I've lived in the USA since I came into this country, I have mm -hmm. managed to have that right outside the front door, and That's it's cool. become like vital to my existence. Right now on our farm, the thing that really makes our farm special is having BLM on two sides of it and being able to run or ride horses or you know, yeah. walk with a shotgun out 
the front door or the back alfal- or the back hayfield gate and to be immediately on BLM land, and that's really, really important to me. Mm. So if I move to South Dakota, that's what I'm looking for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just so you guys know. Who else? Anybody else? Where would you move? I love Wyoming. Yeah. I love Wyoming. I spent quite a bit of my adult life there, uh-huh. and every time I'm back there in sagebrush plains, I'm like, oof, that speaks to a part of me that... Sure. The being here hasn't yet, um, but we talk all the time about moving to immigrant, which is yeah. just over the hill. Well, when we were coming in last night, we flew right over, and mm-hmm. man, holy mm-hmm. cow. That's it was real cloudy, and then we came down to the clouds, and you could see all the mountains and everything. I mean, yeah. It was, That's why they call it Paradise Valley. Yeah. yeah. I, I didn't know exactly where I was, and don't tell the FAA, is that what they're called, but I turned on my phone and <laughs> looked at a map. I was like, where am I? I was like, oh, we're right over Paradise Valley. Um, <laughs> Kate, where would you go? I would move home to Sonoma County. Yeah, that's not bad. Oh, it's yeah. yeah, it's a super magical place. I'm super close with my parents, and they're still there. Cool. Um, there's a lot of coastal rangelands there. Yeah. Juanita, I have a feeling there would be a gunfight if somebody tried to yank you off of your <laughs> family home. That yeah, wouldn't be pretty, this is going to be a little blasphemous, but um, I, I kind of have a crush on California. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. What part? Um, ooh, girl. Yeah, ooh. Uh, but New Zealand was where I was originally going. But that if I counts. had to be in the United States, yeah, I'm, I'm, and I'm getting a little more Idaho curious. Idaho kind of scares me. But, but, uh, but uh, I'm actively rec- recruiting. I tell Becca like once a week, you got to move over here. <laughs> but California, man, that, uh, the mountains, the ocean, the rivers, the trees, the, the diversity is incredible. It's and, the golden state. It's, it's pretty beautiful. It's nice. But if somewhere in Montana, um, and I'm trying, and I'm, I, I've, for like, I don't know, the last 15, 20 years, I've always had this kind of dream of, can I spend an entire year just in Montana? Uh-huh. Um, that's kind of like a New Year's resolution. I haven't been able to do it yet. Um, I, I, so there's, there's a lot of Montana that I want to see, and um, I've kind of developed a little fascination with that Red Lodge area. Like, the, yeah. the grass is so yeah. nice there. Yeah. And then, like, I was like, it's grassy. wow, mountains. I'm like, how do they grow this? And it just seems, yeah, so I'm kind of Red Lodge curious, too. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, one of the things on the podcast, I always try to make it actionable. Like, I, like you can have resources. When, when you finish listening to one of these conversations, you can go to Amazon and just spend way too much money on, on, on books or go to your local bookstore, which would be even better. Um, and so that's one thing. The books aspect is a, has turned out to be a huge aspect of this whole deal. And it's funny because, I'm not joking, in college, I never once finished a book that was assigned, ever, ever. <laughs> and now I'm like Amazon's best customer. Um, but we on the podcast, we talked about your favorite books and all that kind of stuff. But I'd love to hear a book that you've read in the last year that has been impactful for your life. And it doesn't have to be about the West. It doesn't have to be anything, you know, on a theme, but just a, a really, really good book that is, you would recommend that people read. Whoever wants to go first. Okay. Yeah. Um, let's see. Okay. I would like to spout a few. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let it rip. <laughs> Everything by Wendell Berry. I am fully obsessed. If you I... had to pick one that everybody here could read, what would it be? Um, okay. My first was the unsettling of America. Yeah. And that really, like, rocked my brain and made me start chewing on things. But um, just in the last year, I read It All Turns on Affection. Yes. And it's just a small essay of his. But um, 
I love what he has to say about the affection that it takes to really steward land well and what we've lost in the industrialization of farming. And then to follow up on that, um, this author, David Montgomery, he's a geologist, and he wrote a sort of like a trilogy of, bro of books. Yep. And it started with Dirt, um, which kind of looks at like the historical picture of like how civilizations have either thrived or collapsed based on soil. I think you sent me that one, or you, you sent me the link to that one. Yeah, read, yeah, Dirt, but then he followed up with um, The Hidden Side of Nature, which is like the deep science of soil. And then the third book is um, Growing a Revolution, which is like his argument for how we can take industrial farming and make it more regenerative. Cool. Um, not just for hippies, but for like full-on commercial <laughs> farmers too. So yeah. And I'll have links. I'll release this as a podcast episode in the next few weeks, and there'll be links on the page to, to everything. So you, you don't have to write all this down that you can click through. Um, Jillian, you got any good books? Yeah, I'm just finishing American Serengeti right now, <laughs> which is just so good and so, so good. infuriating. What infuriates you about it? I don't know, just the way everything's so different. Yeah. And I just, it's like the glory days are gone. How do we bring them back? Every chapter I'm like gnashing my teeth and praising, that book is so praising the Serengeti. Yeah. It's just amazing. So that's been great. I'm just finishing that one up. I'll finish it on the way home because I've been listening to it, which I never do. I really like to read books, yeah, but same. this one I've been listening to. And another one that's kind of about the West um, that I mentioned to a couple of you guys today already was... Um, Neither wolf nor dog, mm. huh. which isn't really about, I mean, it's about land, I guess, but um, it's about this native elder who hires a white guy to kind of ghostwrite a book for him. Okay. And the book itself is basically a dialogue between the two people. So it's really good. I think every white person should read it. It's uh -huh. really good to have to just sit there and keep your mouth shut and like observe a dialogue between two people, basically. Yep. It's very, I thought it was very interesting. Cool. That was really good. Becca, have you had any good ones? I'm the worst. I buy all the books and I read each one like five pages at a time. That's kind of what I do. So <laughs> I feel like I'm probably still working on the one that you asked me about when we did the podcast a year ago. That's fine. That um, what book was that? Which is Short Nights of the Shadow Catcher about oh, yeah, Edward that Curtis. Come up a lot. And it's really sad and good to read and it realizing that he created this amazing body of work, but he was also paying people off for portraits and for information, and it's horrible. Um, as a photographer documenting stories, I feel like it's a really important book to be reading. What's the title again? Short Nights of the Shadow Catcher. You can um, finish that. I have to finish one of the 17 <laughs> books I'm reading. Egan, Timothy Egan? It is. is. It? Okay. Um, but the ones that I just picked up picked up from the bookstore are Lentils Underground, about Timeless Seeds, yeah. and Grain by Grain, mm. and Claiming Ground. Those are the three kind of agriculture books that right. I'm starting to dive into one page at a time. But I slow and steady just watched a film, which I think is relatable, yeah. to called The Biggest Little Farm. I keep and hearing about that, but I haven't seen it. It just came out on Amazon. It's really wonderful. It's about regenerative agriculture, and it's worth watching it's on amazon all right cool Juanita. it's on the net you know you know Juanita, do you remember the way we connected is you sent me a message tim about egan. Tim, tim egan have he has he been on yet no i'll get him on soon okay, yeah to, i know his nephew do you really yeah <laughs> we'll make that happen we need to <laughs> yeah okay he needs to be on he needs to be on um book uh... <laughs> so um i was reading when i the, this county commissioner 
side hustle gig thing um, over my. Side hustle. <laughs> <laughs> I was with. J J is Jim Howell in here? Uh, um, well, Mr. Howell, Will, getting all the calls. Will Laverack, who I know is, is right down here for my birthday. Um, and we had this long, rainy drive uh, to Recluse, Wyoming, where I was spending my birthday with my husband, who's turkey hunting with Jim Howell and Will. And um, trying to figure out if I was going to do this thing or not. Or, um, and um, I was reading uh, Brene Brown's uh, Daring to Lead, which is an awful title. And it, like, it, like, I choke um, having to say But I, I, I really respect her. Um, and so that, that, um, that, that book has definitely impacted me. And it was just at a time when I was yeah, on this rainy drive with Will. And he's like, you should do it. And that was kind of just the kick in the ass. And I see Emily Dabrowski is over there, too. Um, gave me another kick in the ass. And, uh, and it was all kind of... And, and, and the, reading this book at the time um, kind of gave me the, the energy to, to pursue this. Mm -hmm. That's really a good endorsement Thank for you that guys. book. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. And so it was yeah, about Brene that same... Brown, everyone loves Brene Brown. So. Yeah, she's, yeah. yeah. We had a little staff retreat the other day and something about Brene Brown was involved. She's, she's everywhere. Was it a trust fall? <laughs> did she admit Brene Brown invented the trust? Let's start Maybe. that rumor. She's she did. Genius. She invented it. <laughs> um, so Juanita, you just mentioned your husband, and all four of y'all have these really, really interesting husbands and partners, and you all on your own are badasses, obviously, and you, you're doing your own thing, and you've figured out this way to live these really cool, unique lives, but again, I'm trying to make myself feel better here. If, if, you, had to pick, if you had to pick one or two things that your husband or partner brings to the equation that makes you better what would it be? Who wants to go first? <laughs> and if this, go, if this goes sideways... Becca, you just I'll, got I'll, married. I'll, I'll, I'll edit it out. Things, I'll edit so. it out if, if, if anything, everybody embarrasses. So only us, like, 300 husband. people. Oh, no. I'll sign NDAs when you I'm leave. I'm talking. trying to make up for it. Now I can talk to all of you guys about it. Um, <laughs> so air we, that laundry. Yeah, I'm going I'm to air some laundry here. Give us some wine before yeah. you keep it. I drank all the wine. Um, <laughs> So, so I met my husband on a three-day backcountry bow hunting blind date, and uh, <laughs> as you do in as Montana. As it happens, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and I, I think he shared a story about this in Lewistown with, with Becca earlier. So anyways, um, and we live apart. Uh, I never wanted to be married, and, um, and uh, he lives in Miles City, and I live in, outside of Missoula, so... Um, we're like opposite ends of the fourth largest state, and that's a marriage that I could agree to. Um, <laughs> and and he's, he's an amazing, complex man, and our anniversary is tomorrow, and so I'm oh, cool. thinking about this. Our five-year anniversary. And I was a total fucking bitch to him. <laughs> In J July 4th, okay? So 4th of July is my dad's 80th birthday this year, and I had to plan that. I just got sworn in as a county commissioner. I, I'm not a politician. This was yes, you this are. is not my deal. And um, <laughs> not getting Missoula married. County not is the second largest county in Montana. There's like 118,000 people, like you know, 206,000 square miles. We're in the middle of our budget season right now. Like shit's shitty. And um, 
I, and then we have a guest ranch, and so this is the begin, like the, the height of the season, and finally we've had a really wet June, and now it's July, and it's finally feeling like summer, and we had this like amazing group of people here on the ranch, and so my husband gets like the back burner, and, um, and then we don't see each other very often, so, so um, now, yeah, so it's been about six, no oh, shit, it's been like two months, and so I need to make it up to him. Um, gotta do that, plan? baby. Uh, so the, the one thing that, that, that he provides for me, uh, I, I eat a lot. I eat anything. I'm a good eater. Um, so he provides, he, provides, he provides that way. But uh, also, um, he's made me really curious about uh, foraging food. Like, uh, I, don't, I was never really into fishing. Um, yeah. And now I, I'm really curious about different flavors of fish flesh. And, yeah. um, and, and mushrooms is another thing that I was always kind of like, stay away from them. So he's made me way more curious about the foraging world. And, and he's a geeky scientist. Um, nice. Nice. And so that makes me curious as well. Even cool. though he thinks that I'm not curious about his work, I really am. <laughs> yeah. We'll have that recorded. You can play it back to him. Becca, you want to go? Sure. Um, I think what Eduardo brings, or some of the biggest gifts that he brings to our relationship is positivity. He's one of the most positive people that I know, and it can drive me a little bit crazy at times when I want to vent, and he's like, no, it's great, it's great. <laughs> but um, in retrospect, I always appreciate that viewpoint. Yeah. Um, and then he's also really encouraged me just through being out in the woods together to take a look around and look for deer beds or look up in trees and pay attention to where you're walking and see like the cache of, um, like the squirrel's little cache at the base of a pine tree. And that has been really fun for me to just go walk through the woods and pay more attention to what I'm seeing because of him. That's something I love about Ed is that he's always just kind of in the very oh, yeah. present and whatever it is that catches his eye, he'll kind of like out. me. He'll be like, look at this glorious. Isn't it amazing? Leech. Yeah. <laughs> He'd be like, I've never seen one so speckled and beautiful. He's really, like he gets really into yeah, yeah. it. Yeah. And, he, yeah. and he speaks it out loud, which I love because yeah. I do that too. He likes to share it. It's fun. Yeah. <laughs> I love that about Ed. Well, I want to ask you a question to like follow up and prompt on something we talked about. Because oh. you've got your business, The Noisy Plume, in which you're building jewelry. Where do you see that being? You're talking about the big enough theory. I, I want am. the big enough. Oh, yeah. I, I heard about you the You guys theory. all talked about the big enough. I, yeah. I don't know anything about the big enough. would you please okay. tell us about the big enough yeah. theory? Thank yeah. You. Kate and I had lunch today, <laughs> and I was like, Kate, I have this theory. It's called the big enough theory. So we've been, like, you get told as a, like, as a business owner that you've got to keep growing and expanding and hiring people to help you do the work and overseeing all of your minions who are pumping out the product. But what if it's also okay to have a small business, in my case to be an artist, and to reach a point where you're just big enough, like, and that's okay. You can hit the plateau and you can just live there comfortably your whole life, creating in that zone comfortably, you know, comfortably living on what you're creating for yourself in terms of finances, like what if you don't actually need to continue expanding and getting more and more and more and more gigantic until you like eat all the competition? Yeah. Like what if you don't have to do that? What if that's a lie we've been told? Yeah. 
and you can just reach a point where you're big enough. Yeah, I agree with that. Now you know the theory. Take the theory out into the world and practice the theory. No, I completely. I was talking with uh, Matt Barber of Tom Morgan Rodsmith today. I went by and looked at his shop, and they make these just unbelievably nice fly rods. And I, we had talked about this before, but I, I got my MBA, and everything Matt is doing is the exact opposite of what they told me at business school. You know, business school is scale, 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 yeah. get bigger, 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 pay people as little as you can, blah, blah, blah. Don't worry about the quality. It's just get it going. And I think everybody here and, and the, all the people I've had on the podcast, Matt, it's an example of just you, you don't need to play that game. And um, if you're looking for a resource on that, Seth Godin mm-hmm. is this author that I am obsessed with. And I credit him with any of this podcast, all of it. It's about find your, your niche and find the people that care about what you're doing and ignore everybody else. And um, he actually talks about like the minimal. Yeah, the minimum viable audience. You know, you're not trying to serve every, because when you serve everybody, you're watering it down. And um, so I'm talking too much. Uh, And (laughs) so you're really hitting it out of the ballpark. Yeah. (laughs) All right. And then, Kate, where do you see? Um, Very similar to Jillian. Um, Really thinking about that, like, big enough and like where do we take the farm and where do I take my hat company and how do I compartmentalize things so that the whole picture feels good and that we're doing good and we you know we were talking about the law of diminishing returns and a lot of people like hit that crest and keep going in which it doesn't make sense and I think about that a lot in agriculture and um so in 10 to 20 years um I'd like to see us managing more ground in our region of Central Oregon. I know that there's going to be, like in Oregon, there's going to be about 64% of our agricultural lands will be turning over hands in the next mm-hmm. two decades. Wow. And when we look around, we wonder, well, who's farming? Who's going to be mm-hmm. farming it? Who yeah. of our generation is farming at this scale? It's very few people. So I would like us to figure out our system so that we can be applying like our holistic regenerative practices to larger swaths of land Uh Um, and I'd like to teach and educate and inspire people to return to the land and see that it is a viable option and it's a very meaningful way to do life Um, and it's hard but it's super rewarding so I'd like to have a teaching aspect to our farm that's great Um, well all four of y'all are so inspiring with what you do and as are you know all the other people I've had on the podcast and this is really true is that you know I was selling ranches, you know, the kind of ranches you see around here to these, you know, ultra wealthy people. And, and that's great. But there was really, to me personally, there was no soul in that. And it wasn't, I wasn't passionate about it. And getting to talk to folks like this and everybody that I've had on the podcast, I really do credit them with getting me to make that switch to pursue my own passion. And so, I mean, I'm, a, I'm exhibit A of if you listen closely to these women and the other people I've had, and don't listen to me, mute it when I start talking, but listen to these other people. It really can change your life. Um, and they're, they're brave and they're following their own path. They're going against conventional wisdom, like I was saying with Matt. Um, and that takes guts and it's not easy and they're doing it and these are, this is proof it can be done. And so um, I really encourage people to, to listen and, um, and you know, contribute and continue to set your own example in your community. So. Let's do some uh, Q&A. Um, we can, uh, we're going to get a microphone, I think. I think Becca might have one. We'll turn on the lights. Because we're recording it, so it'd be great if you could talk in the microphone. we yep. got 
question down here. Okay. And then I'm just going to let, we'll probably do like two or three down here, then some up there if we need to. So we'll just see uh, how it goes. Hi. Hey. Uh, I'm Sarah Wentz Fisher. I'm, I'm here from New Mexico. Yeah. Um, yeah. Podcast Yay. guest. Executive director of the Kavira Coalition. Thanks for the intro. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So my question is just piggybacking off of that. Part of the reason that I'm up here is we run an agricultural apprenticeship program. And mentorship is really important. And I know, Ed, you always ask questions about, you know, who are your mentors? And I want to know, like, how are you all mentors? Or who are you mentoring? Or who would you like to be mentoring? Ooh, that's a, I'm going to borrow that question in future podcasts. All right. <laughs> Anybody want to go? Um, gosh, I would like to be mentoring young women. I'd like to be mentoring teenage women because I remember how confusing that time was. Um, so I'd like to get involved in my com- community that way. Um, I can't say I really feel like I'm... Well, there's a few young women I feel like I kind of mentor right now. And I pretty much tell them not to listen to anybody and to do exactly what they feel like they should do. (laughs) Anybody else? I've always kind of had a little dream of having enough property to have, like, people come... Like, women specifically come out and actually teach them to cast on my little pond that I have. Teach them to shoot a shotgun. Teach them to can things. Teach them how to, like, design a garden. All that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff, like... Things that I consider like a base, part of a basic skill set. Yeah, yeah. But I've always kind of dreamed of doing that. I don't know when I'll have time for it. Rob will have to retire, but. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't know who I'm, I don't think I'm mentoring anyone right now, except for when people write me and ask me, you know, for business advice or for creative advice, which I try to give out as freely as possible. Becca, what about you? Um, it's been Eduardo's brainchild. Uh, to combine his business with the Big Sky Youth Empowerment Group, which is here in Bozeman, that is taking youth out on really cool learning adventures, and just, it's a program of mentorship, and we, or he, brought them out to the garden for a series of three, learn how to grow your own meal, and that, from a distance, has been really fun to watch just people from the community come to our place and learn what a potato looks like, how you plant a potato, and then how to cook a potato or, you know, whatever vegetable or fruit that is. So I would love to to continue mentoring in that way just in this community too. Cool. Juanita? Um, I want to be a good aunt. Um, And and then... uh, I've been so lucky with my family's ranch, which is, you know, I'm like the fourth generation. So we have this space to allow young people that come as kids. And like, I mean, here in the second row, we got a a bunch of folks that um, they've come to the ranch as as kids, as guests, and then they've come to work on the ranch. And now they're here committed to Montana and serving Montana in a way that just like makes my heart explode to Mm. see you guys here and like the work that you're doing. Getting all teary. and uh, so, yeah, so that feels really good. So if, uh, to, to your question, though, like, what, what do we do to mentor? Um, yeah, p- being available, providing space, and then, and then just straight up asking people to, to serve. Um, people need to be asked. And mm-hmm. I, I think, um, yeah, asking and, and then supporting. Great. 
I wanted to add on to yeah. that yeah, too. This summer we had a my partner's nephew, Noah, who's about 14, came and worked on the farm and he had been around the farm but he had never really like worked on a farm before. Yeah. And I know his parents just wanted to get him like out of Boise, away from his friends, off the Game Boy or whatever, and just like put him to work. And like to watch that kid like learn to drive a stick. And then the first time I watched him try and learn how to like huck bales was so cute and such a struggle. But like I watched this kid over six weeks like learn all these new skills he had never, he, he just felt like a capable young man. And I really enjoyed watching him step into his own as a young man and feel um, empowered and capable. So I would love to see more teenagers just, shit, we need hands on farms and they need mm-hmm. to grow up. So <laughs> <laughs> send your kids to us. Yeah. There's something really lovable about farm kids and ranch kids is like, totally. they're like men and women at the age of like 12. Yes. Right. Yeah. They're not living in the parents' basement. No, they can 40. handle things, yeah. you know, and They've that's got, good. Yeah. Yeah. Other question? Thanks for not making me walk too far on these heels. <laughs> um, I'm Olivia Lang, and I live here in Bozeman. Um, and my question is, so you all do jobs um, and are part of trades um, that are very old, um, whether it's um, like land organizing and leadership or farming and ranching, um, photography and journalism, um, or like wearing, making like wearables, like hats and jewelry. Um, and those are all things that have a lot of, like, modernly, like, a lot of mechanization and a lot of, like, modernization involved in what you can do with them, which is, like, a wonderful thing. Um, but how do you, um, just, like, favorite ways or ways that come to mind, like, how do you get back to, like, the roots of that? Like, what are some of your favorite ways to, like, honor the, like, heritage and, like, original, like, origins of those things that you do? Hmm. Yeah, we should have just done two hours of Q&A from the audience. <laughs> <laughs> I get to do it every, I mean, I'm doing the exact same thing that my great-grandparents are doing. I'm just going down the same trails, you got some dudes bouncing off some horses right behind me. I mean, it's a, <laughs> so, I, and it's, it's awesome to be able to, to plug in, I mean, and we're still probably using some of the same tack, even. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so I, there's a very, like, physical, immediate uh, connection that I have with my my great grandparents um, with what I get to do. So that's, cool. that's I guess that's how I do it. But what about y'all? I think that my work is also like very physically. Okay, hat work. I'll just say hat work. My hat work is very physically tied to old uh, tools. Um, most of my head blocks are from the early 1900s. I have a couple pieces that are from uh, the late 1800s. They're more show pieces, but like I keep them in my workshop because literally I see the like marks and scrapes of a hat maker from the early 1900s, and that's the coolest. Um, so yeah, same thing. I think I literally physically need to have these items, and I touch them with my hands, and I work with them every day or a lot of days. That's relatable for me, too, as a jeweler. But I also relate with what you said, Juanita, because I come from... um, My grandparents were wheat farmers in Saskatchewan. My sister and I always lament the fact that we were meant to be farmers, but we never got the family farm. <laughs> it got, you know, sold off because my grandparents only had daughters and no one wanted to take the farm over. So I feel like a direct connection to my grandparents by just working the scrap of earth that I have. It's not a 2,000-acre wheat plot, but... It's what I have. I think of my grandfather specifically a lot when I work, who was, like, such a cool guy. So it's close awesome. to me in that regard. Cool. Becca, anything to add? 
I feel like in photography, the new gear is always the best gear, or that's what people want. And I'm trying to trying to print more photos because there's something really special about seeing images in print versus on a computer screen that every time I'm working for a company and it gets printed, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And so there's an excitement about printing photos that I'm trying to do more of. Cool. Any other questions? Got a few. Becca, I'll let you pick. Oh gosh. Um, do we have some up there though? Do we want to switch it up to the balcony or are you? Yeah, any up we're, top? We're here. Okay. All right, we're, we're good down here. Okay, I'm going to walk over here. Also, I would be remiss to, um, I said I made that poster. I did not make that poster. Stacy Townsend made that poster. Is she here? If you want your face on Patrick Swayze, <laughs> she can do it. So you just let me know, I'll connect you. Question? Hi, um, my name is Sam. I'm actually from south of Chicago. Um, oh, wow. So right now in my life, the most important thing is my horse. Um, she's kind of changed my life. So I'm interested in hearing um, what your guys' thoughts are on how horses have impacted your lives or what role they play right mm. now in your lives. Mm. Do we have enough time? Good question. <laughs> yeah. It's a bunch of horse girls. We're extending this for three hours. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody can go. <laughs> um, uh, I've worked with horses my whole life, um, but I was always uh, riding other people's horses, or I had jobs where I worked with those horses for the job. And uh, three years ago, I was able to convince my partner that I was going to get a little colt, and I was going to start him. And I've never started a colt before. And... Um, it has been the most wonderful and humbling experience. A, uh, just patience, because he was about three weeks old when I met him. I was like, yes. And so I've had to wait years to start that writing relationship. And I've always been very quick to want to, like, gallop and go. But, like, when you start a horse, like, it's all about, like, the slow communication building on the ground. So that's been really good for somebody like me who's, like, hot to trot. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I think that's the biggest teacher of him. And, and, and when you're working with a young colt like that who doesn't quite get it, um, you don't get to lose your temper and you don't get to get short. And that's been a really wonderful mirror for me um, in working with him to just slow down and figure out a better form of communication. And working with him has made me a better communicator with other humans too, for sure. And everybody yeah. does not have to answer, if you know what I mean, but feel free. Let, talk as much as you want. <laughs> well, a really sweet thing for me with our horses, I've been a horsewoman my whole life, and I finally um, acquired my first horse like two and a half years ago for the first time in my life, my own horse. It was great. And um, it made Robert jealous because I was always going off places and riding for hours by myself. Um, so we bought him a horse too. And he had really no experience with horses. Um, so I bought him a horse and then put him on it, and he learned to ride, basically. But the really sweet thing about it is that there are a lot of things that we do that I learned to do because I wanted to be with him while we were doing it, like fishing and hunting, for example. I knew if I didn't learn to do those things that he just would go off and do them on his own, and it wouldn't be something we did together as a family. And luckily, once I started doing those things, I actually really fell in love with doing those things, which is great. But Robert has a really beautiful beginner's heart with everything that he approaches in life. And to watch him actually 
um, start down a path of horsemanship and learning how to work with horses and actually um, develop riding skills has been really sweet. And it adds a really great dimension to backcountry hunting. I mean, it's really nice. I'm sure some people can attest it's nice to not have to walk. Um, but it's just added a lot of dimension to our lives. It's one more thing we get to do together, so we really love it. Very cool. I don't have my own horse yet, but I, I come from a family of hunting. I come from an outfitter family. And so for me, we never had horses growing up. But as an adult, getting to somehow making friends with a lot of people with horses mm-hmm. and benefiting from that, um, we are slowly starting the process of acquiring or figuring out because we can't currently have them where we're at. Um, But last fall, I was on a hunting pack trip, and it was the first time in my life using a friend's horse that I felt like the horse and I were working as a team. And it was so fun to enter into like having seen bird dogs or people who are using eagles or falcons to hunt with, just a totally different type of partnership to be working with a horse um, and feel that teamwork. And I'm so excited about that and when we can have our own. So I have um, a little over 100 horses. And um, Bragger. <laughs> and it's a shit show, and I would never want my husband to ride. Like, um, but uh, he... he I would never, yeah, I would not put that on him. Um, I could spend all my time teaching people to ride, and, and horses are dangerous, and oh my God, yeah. So I don't want to add that stress to our relationship. It's like learning. His gifts and talents lay with llamas. Yeah, and I don't know anything about llamas, so it's wonderful. Um, and llamas, uh, yeah. Uh, but what you're talking about, um, about horses and what they can give to a person, I so cherish that, I get to watch a person who maybe doesn't know how to ride at all on a Sunday and is terrified of riding, and then by Friday, um, they are a more complete, compassionate person because of this experience they've had with a horse. And I love being able to provide that, and it means a lot to me. Um, and then I feel so fortunate to have been able to grow up as a kid with, with uh, parents who... Um, and I even got to take clinics with Ray Hunt, who's, who's mm. kind of like a you know, the godfather of horse whispering. Um, and that was really powerful. And just con- to continue that education, like my mom and I are going to go to Portugal um, next month to go work with a Grand Prix dressage rider, um, trainer, and, and work with some Lusitanas. And mm-hmm. just to keep developing our riding and our skills and like our relationship with horses. And I think horses, horses are really special and there's something that people can get out of horses that maybe I mean yes you can get it out of a dog too but there's something there's something unique about a relationship with a horse and I love being able to provide that and to watch um, a person kind of go through that and so I'm stoked for you that you have that <laughs> great question where do you keep your horse in Chicago um, we actually live about an hour south of Chicago oh nice um, and I live in she lives at a therapeutic writing center about 50 minutes off. Oh, cool. Thanks. Cool. That's great. I think we got time for one or two more. We have a question up here. Yeah. Oh, yeah, let's do one up top. We should ask. Uh, there's men that um, might have So this questions. question is really directed towards... 
Rebecca and Juanita, because you come from the two uh, fastest growing counties in Montana, respectively. Where do you see development and private property rights fitting into your views? I work at the DEQ and I review subdivisions, if that's any background. <laughs> what about development? I mean, so where I do you guess see it going? Like from a private property rights standpoint, and you spoke about how you are opposed to a hundred and some lot subdivision in Missoula County. Mm-hmm. Does that conflict with your private property rights views? or And especially yeah. affordable housing in both of these counties. Exactly. And that was what was really interesting about that particular um, proposal with that developer was like, oh, we need some affordable housing. Absolutely. But this was 119 lots an hour's drive. But gas at, you know, two, at Ben, it was like 230, 240 a gallon. Um, so it, it was kind of this farcical sort of, his intention wasn't pure. The developer's intention wasn't correct. Um, because who was going to live out in this part of the county that was, um, for the master plan, was originally one dwelling per 40 acres. It was an open resource agricultural land. And so, it, and there was some significant wildlife issues. Uh, it's a corridor, a wildlife corridor for grizzly bears as well, um, elk and deer. But, uh, and there was the individual well, well, your DEQ, individual well and septic um, would just impact the creeks that this proposal was going to be on and the groundwater and and so it was just this egregious proposal that, that yes, we need affordable housing, and it needs to be, placed, it needs to be put in places that uh, make sense. And where this development was going didn't make sense for a variety of issues. But in general, I mean, yeah, our two counties are definitely growing. And I think like in the city of Missoula, we have different geographical constraints that I don't think you guys have It's a wider valley here. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. I don't know. That's a complicated question. Um, I think that I only moved to Bozeman or the Bozeman area nine years ago. And in that time, I have noticed that my commute past Four Corners into town has gotten progressively longer. Um... I also, and it's easy to complain about that because I moved to Montana for the open space and the agricultural land, and I'm also a part of the problem. And I need to, I need to be better if I'm going to be upset about something within the community here. I need to be a part of the community and raise my voice about the things that I don't agree with and um, so I joined the board of the Upper Missouri Waterkeeper um, which is doing a lot for water rights within the city and that's been a good way for me to voice concerns or um, ask questions about development within the valley but it's hard like people want housing, people need affordable housing here and there's not a lot of it and you also want to preserve the open space. So I don't know. It's complicated. I don't know how I feel about it yet. Yeah, there's no, there's no right answer, obviously. I mean, that's, that's what I do all day long is try to figure out this balance between the need for 
a lot of people moving in and the need for limited resources and like I do a lot of water right stuff and there's an X amount of water but there's when you add up everybody that needs it it's a lot more than X so what are you going to do and I think it's just yeah. having the input from all these different people and having people involved and I think like I had uh, Mike Phillips on mm-hmm. who does the, the wolf reintroduction stuff and he was talking about you know he sees himself as pushing hard from one side and yeah people might not agree with him but there are other forces pushing from the other side and so I think having all these competing views the most you know the, the developer who wants to build the densest thing you can possibly ever even consider building and then somebody who's saying no development ever neither one of those is right but I think in the end it makes for a good conversation and hopefully it, it just makes people think about the process more because you look where I live Colorado Springs there's no water there and they got 100,000, I mean, 500,000 people living there. And literally 70%, like I fill up a glass of water, 70% of that water is coming from Aspen, Colorado, on the other side of the divide, being pumped over. And um, it's unbelievably complicated. And the more I learn, the more I realize it's even more complicated than I thought it was an hour ago. And right. so it's, um, I think just having these discussions is key. And I think that's one of the cool things that's been about this podcast is you can have all these discussions with interesting people learn about them as people, and then separate them from the idea. Um, one more question, then we're going to give away some stuff. And can I tack on to that yes. really quick? Yes. Because this is, um, I sent you an article not yeah, long you ago. Did. Yeah, Yeah. And, okay, back to this question and growth and development, and we want to keep everybody happy. But I think part of our current problem and situation is we've taken an area with limited resources and applied our sort of... Uh, capitalistic view that there's infinite growth available and applied it to an area that has limited resources and that's why we're all in this weird situation in the west and like what is one of the biggest issues in the west water no doubt and as an example i was talking with chris about this before coming out in central oregon the way that water rights work in our area is, you know, the bend region bend in our area is sort of like the bozeman blowing up and there was an urban growth boundary established based on the resources that we had, and they thought this was a good boundary. And they just keep moving the boundary, and so everything keeps growing and sprawling, and what was once agricultural lands is now not at all. Mm -hmm. But they still have the most senior water rights in our region, but they're not an agricultural producer. Um, And uh, Madras, Oregon, our North Unit Irrigation District, has the most junior water rights, even though that's the most agricultural producing part of our region. So uh, currently, like this year, for example, like we are in drought. And all the other irrigation districts that are primarily using water for the expanding urban growth boundaries, for the golf courses, for the recreation, they have full water rights. And in fact, they don't even meter their water. And then our agricultural lands are operating on two-thirds of our water allotment, which is 1.5 acre feet, whereas normally we should have 2.5. So just one more thing to consider as we're looking at development and expansion in these areas how do the water rights get allocated and are the people speaking to that or is it just sort of like an outdated antiquated way of allocating our resource so complicated very complicated <laughs> but I want people to think about it yeah you gotta think about it you yeah. gotta start to at least try alright one more and then free gear hello my name is Kristen McRae um, I'm a local here and um, I actually didn't understand that we would be talking about private land or growing food, um, but I, I am, uh, that's a topic I'm very passionate about. 
um, the rate of return on investment for farmers and ranchers is like 2 to 3 percent. The average age is 67 to 72. Mm-hmm. How are we going to, um, A, number one, get consumers involved where they get their food? And also growers tapped into that. You talked a little bit about that, Kate, but there's a real disconnect between, similar to what you said, Jillian, um, life and death, and also just like where we get our food and going to the grocery store and getting something in a plastic container. Like, how do we bridge that gap? Awesome question. I think it'll be my life's mission is to figure out how to re connect people or get them to give a shit. Um, I think about the youth. I just think about this being a part of their education from the start. Like, how do we teach them all these skills? And, like, you know, you learn to type in third grade, but you don't know anything about growing food You know, there are inner-city kids that don't understand that carrots come from dirt. Yeah. No, there's a total disconnect. So I'd love to see every single school have a school farm Mm -hmm. or school garden. Doesn't have to be anything complicated, but literally just teach them to sow seeds, watch seed grow, mm-hmm. harvest and cook said seed. Um, I think that would be a great place to start. And then I use my big mouth and my platform in any way I can to talk about this stuff as loud as I can. Um, and I'd love everybody else to do that too. Um, we have to make, I almost said like make farming sexy, but like that's diminishing. We have to make it enticing to young people. Um, And I don't believe in the broke farmer myth. I think you can be a profitable farmer, and I think you can do it regeneratively. And I think we're going to, like, really show people how to do that, and you have to be smart. Um, So, yeah, that's my little right now answer. I think the renormalization of growing your food, like, no matter how much space you have, even if it's just an apartment patio space that you can put pot like herbs in pots on like renormalizing growing something for yourself renormalizing eating meat which is normal i feel anyway so i mean some of that needs to take place in society too jillian and i were talking about this earlier too part of what i'm working on right now is telling stories about not necessarily generational transfers of ranches and land, but what young ranchers are doing to afford land. And one of the things that they're doing, at least in eastern Montana, is something called a grass bank. So it's basically like a co-op where they pay in. You can graze your cattle if you're doing it in a sustainable way. And it's a small group, but both Jillian and I were saying today that we believe that there is an increase uh, or there will be an increase of cooperative type farming and ranching. We were talking about this that much too. In the future. Mm -hmm. You have to. You have to band together and equipment is expensive, land is expensive, and so why not do it together um, which benefits everyone. USDA butcher in your valley. Yeah. We're talking definitely about like some co-opting options for all of our local farms. One, like if we're all these sort of smaller, mid-sized farms, makes us very hard to enter certain markets. Um, but if we could band together, we might have sort of this buying power or producer power that is bigger than any of us individually. 
um, and we're all sort of on the same page in our farming methods. So that's one idea is to sort of co-opt to try and get into these markets because mm -hmm. that's just how to move your food is really the biggest problem. Um, yeah. And to kind of transition to the next stage, in my, my work, one of the tools we use is a conservation easement. And when you put a conservation easement on a property, it lowers the value. So whether you're talking about irrigated farmland or ranch land, especially in an area like this where there's a lot of pressure, uh, that can bring that value down and make it, sometimes make it affordable for young farmers um, mm -hmm. because there's no development potential. And so that's a great tool. And a case study of one of the best organizations in the country that does that is the Montana Land Reliance. And they're going to come up, Jesse from the Montana Land Reliance is going to come up, just tell them, talk a little bit about what they're doing. And then I'm going to go backstage and grab all the free stuff that our sponsors have been so nice to give. And we have some raffle tickets that you could have bought out there. And we will uh, give this stuff away and then... Yeah, MLR. I'll keep this short and sweet. I'm Jesse Weiss. I'm the Southwest Manager for the Montana Land Reliance. And this is Catherine Kelly. She is here in Bozeman and is the Greater Yellowstone Manager. And you guys have said it so well for us, actually, and talked so much about why private land conservation matters. Obviously, we're... We believe it's foundational to all conservation out there and that private lands are really incredibly important to all the public lands that we also love. So, um, you know, MLR is the largest statewide land trust in the country. Woo! Woo! Yeah. In the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem, uh, we've protected over 300,000 acres right here in your backyard. So we know that there's more and more development pressure taking place in this area right now, and we're working on it. So, yes, we're in good hands. Hey, it's Ed again. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast, and thanks for listening to that particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Before you go, I've got three quick things. Number one, if you like the podcast, please do me a huge favor. Either pass it along to a friend who may be interested, share it on your social media, and or go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me, and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, if you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam, no other kind of nonsense, just books. So if you'd like to sign up for the list, head to Mountain and Prairie slash reading or just go to Mountain and Prairie and there's a massive tab at the top that says book recommendations. Click on it. There are a ton of good books that I've read. Some of the old email lists are on there. Uh, you can go crazy. There are a lot of books. And finally, if you know anyone I should interview for the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. All my contact info is at mountainandprairie.com, and I'm on all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to have some recommendations and suggestions of interesting people I should meet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. <laughs>